What did David Bowie think about David Bowie? Um, well, all right. I find that I'm a, a person who um, can um, take on the guises of, of different people that I meet. I can switch accents in, in seconds of meeting somebody and I can adopt their accent. I've always found that I collect. I'm a collector. Um, and I've always just seemed to collect personalities, um, ideas. I have a hodgepodge philosophy which really is very minimal. Um, very do you little believe in God, for instance? What? Do you believe in God? Um, I believe in an energy form, but I'm not, I, wouldn't, uh, put a, I wouldn't like to put a name to it. Do you indulge in any form of worship? Um, uh, life. I love life very much indeed. Yeah. Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Kuitis. On this episode, we speak with Mike Garson on the life and times of David Bowie. Mike, thank you very much for joining us for D-Next. It's uh, great to have you with us, and I really appreciate you making the time. It's my pleasure, you know. Um, now that I've finished the major project, I'm happy to have some air and oxygen to breathe and live a normal life, give some piano lessons, compose again, and, uh, and do some interviews. Well, I want to start with that because I really want to sincerely uh, congratulate you uh, and commend you on the recent uh, tribute live stream event uh, a couple of weeks ago. It seems like a dream now uh, on the other side of it. Uh, and it was just really quite inspired uh, and quite beautiful. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was <clears throat> I guess it would be called, uh, I don't know, insane to try to pull it off during COVID and make it look like a concert where 30 great artists were singing from all around the world and no one was really together and somehow make it look like we're together using the best of technology and the producers I work with and the other engineers and mixers and editors. I mean, it, it took a village and it was one of these projects that I worked on for 14 weeks straight, uh, 15 hours a day, seven days a week, and just barely made it. We actually were one day late, and we almost didn't make the second night just because people would get sick from COVID, shortage of editors, people couldn't be in the same space, all of that kind of stuff. But thank God it, it, it all came together, and uh, I'm glad that people who got to see it loved it, you know? It was really quite uh, a moment. And uh, I guess, apart from asking the obvious question, which I'll do anyway, why did you do this? So I was supposed to be on tour um, this month. Uh, I've been traveling with the Bowie alumni band for four years. Uh, every year we go out and do a few months uh, with many great singers over the last four years, maybe a hundred different singers have sat in with some of my, myself and some of the Bowie alumni. 
and from Sting to Lord to Ian Asbury to Perry Farrell to Gavin Russell, on and on. And uh, we couldn't go out this year. So I figured the next best thing is, can I pull off uh, a streaming virtual show with these phenomenal singers who all love David? And could I find um, 40 David Bowie alumni, people I haven't played with for 46 years, from Dave Sanborn to Carlos Alomar, to people that I've been playing with, you know, a few months ago, because I was on tour last March and when COVID hit, we had to cancel that tour. So we only did six shows out of the 30 in America. So it, it had to be done because it was five years since his passing. So I called John Taylor from Duran Duran and I said, how would you like to open the show with five years with the band? And the next thing I get is this incredible video from them where they, three of them were in England, John Taylor filmed in LA, I filmed in my studio in LA, and somehow the director made us look like we're all in the same space. And one of the pleasant surprises of which there were many, but the Duran Duran, I guess, uh, interpretation of five years has really uh, caught fire. Uh, I, I see this video and I hear this uh, version of it everywhere now. It's, uh, were you expecting, uh, was this something that was a complete surprise or did you expect something like this to come out of the, the, the kernel of what you put together? Actually had no idea. <clears throat> I just was making calls uh, to many of my friends and people who I knew loved David or I had played on their albums because uh, I've done stuff for Def Leppard and so Joe Elliott joined and I've done stuff with Billy Corgan from the Pumpkins and I've done stuff with Trent Reznor. So I just, they were my friends and I just asked, would you like to contribute a song or two? And uh, so um, Duran Duran asked me, well, Nick asked me for a, to lay down a piano part with a click and I did that and I sent some strings uh, and then he took that and he built the rest of the arrangement around it with the band and they used some electronic drums and all of a sudden I get this thing and I couldn't believe what I heard because naturally I played it with David Bowie maybe 300 times as early as 1972 and as late as 2004 in the last tour he ever did. So the song is close to my heart. Plus over the last four or five years, I've played it with my different bands. And to hear their arrangement um, was fascinating because I played it for my grandson uh, a few weeks ago and then he started listening to it and downloading it. <laughs> and then he had never heard the original one by David and then I played him that because sonically things were different in the early 70s. He enjoyed the version with Duran Duran, which is how music is. You pass it through generations and people do different things with it. And my whole idea of the whole concert was to celebrate David's music because if he never um, performed and was only a songwriter, they're well worth, well worth songs to be sung by such amazing singers who could uh, make it their own voice and not be karaoke. So if it's Andrew Hill or Judith, Judith Hill or Andrew Day or Joe Elliott or 
you know, Billy Corgan or Trent Reznor or, or Perry Fowl, Duran Duran, each of these singers, Ian Asbury, they own the song. And um, uh, even Gary Oldman, who one wouldn't think or know that he was a singer, did an amazing performance of a Tin Machine song called I Can't Read. So we had music spanning at least 40 years of David's uh, writing career. And uh, I can't tell you uh, how joyful it was because uh, each song I was able to treat in a way like an album track because I had these weeks to work on these arrangements and these songs with the band and many of the alumni. I took 18 songs and made them sound like the album through the help of the alumni. Then I took another 18 songs and made new arrangements just to push the envelope because I think David would want me to do that. So I did duets and string quartet pieces and all sorts of things. So it was a great experience, just a little stressful <laughs> in doing it in covert times. Well, and I suppose what made it even more special, you know, great circumstances like this often create great moments of genius. And to which you know a lot about this, your your musical universe and DNA is all over um, seminal popular music of our times. I want to hear a bit more about your work. And if I understand it correctly, uh, you're a trained classical composer. Is this is this is that correct, or a pianist? Yes, it's. I think it's true. <laughs> I don't know about the word trained. I did most of my studying between seven and like maybe eighteen or twenty, and then then I had to unlearn it all and figure out what I wanted to do and say. And uh, in that way, you sort of become self-trained and you find your voice. And I was had a longer runway because. I was searching for my voice in classical music, in jazz music, in fusion music, in rock music, alternative music, and my own uh, music called Now Music, which I've written over 3,000 classical pieces, but it's called Now Music because they're actually improvised in the moment, but they sound like they're written. And I spent 20 years developing that, but these are things that nobody will hear for a hundred years because no one's interested <laughs> and because instrumental music in itself is hardly heard jazz is hardly heard and 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 atonal classical music or things of that nature are just not in the consciousness of our society the good news is some of it i've been able to put on top of people's musics like bowie or the pumpkins or iron shells or whatever duran duran or hundreds of groups and I could use portions of my jazz and classical skills but my actual full classical works I'm not sure they'll be uh, heard uh, in my lifetime some are around the planet played by classical pianists and a few people have gotten masters and PH degrees on some of my music but we're talking about such a small <laughs> a small population of of people who resonate with what I do. The good news is Bowie recognized I had those skills. So he was able to superimpose. I was like the icing on the cake and he would put some of that icing on songs through the long 
many years that we played together, plus the thousand shows we did together, 20 albums, I suspect, uh, he would find anything that was in my head that I had ever studied, practiced, composed, he found a place for it on a song. And that was David's genius as, as a, as a um, casting director, let's say. And every musician, as you probably realized, who worked with him was the right person at the right time from Mick Ronson to Donnie McClasson. So it's one of these things that he had that gift separate from being a great writer, a great singer, a great producer, a great actor. He, he knew who to hire, whether it was Carlos Alomar, Mick Ronson, or Earl Slick, or the Spiders from Mars, or Jerry Leonard, or Sterling Campbell, Zach Alford, you know, Gail Ann Dorsey. He, everyone he ever chose, Mark Platty, they would just call mine Rowhouse or Nile Rogers. Uh, it's just endless. Um, so um, at the time, of course, you don't know any of this is happening. You know, I was a kid in the 70s and he just liked jazz and classical. We used to talk about Charlie Mingus and uh, Stan Kenton. I'm thinking, who is this guy? Because I didn't know Bowie when he called me in 72 because I was just as jazz musician on the scene and it just was kind of freaky that he even found me, you know? And this whole idea, as you said, that you don't realize what's going on or the kind of history that's being made at the time because you're caught up in the in the whirlwind of it. He obviously saw something in you and you saw something in him. And looking back over those years from 1972 onwards, what do you think you taught each other? Well, I didn't, you know, it's good that I was naive. It's good that I didn't know rock and roll. It's good that I didn't know him because everyone was always bowing down to him because it's David Bowie. Well, I didn't know David Bowie. So mm -hmm. I'm a year older than David Bowie and a year, year and a half older in, in those days in your 20s. There's a lot of years. And I had come from this whole other world. And because he was a chameleon and very sponge-like to absorb, he was much more interested in asking me about my music and what I could contribute. Unknowingly, I was always asking him, but I was told <laughs> 30 years later, he didn't care for that. He just wanted me. So he had someone to look up to in that way. You know, he certainly didn't look up to me as a singer or a dancer or as a fashion person, but in terms of the music. So I didn't, I didn't know that because I just, I think I was a little naive that, that way, you know. When years later, when um, David Bowie passed, were you surprised at the way the world reacted to that? It was almost a religious uh, moment uh, at the time. And also probably one of the classiest exits I've ever seen, but did, were you were you expecting the kind of uh, reaction that the world had after he died? Um, <clears throat> no, it was shocking. Of course, I was shocked because he's not just David Bowie, this great artist, Renaissance man. He's uh, my friend, right? So it was very, very uh, sad. I, I felt the same grief as probably everyone who loved him around the planet. And uh, I must have done 150 interviews in that first two weeks from all around the world, just because I had some additional insight into the man. But um, I was surprised, 
but I wasn't because in 1972, I only played 10 or 12 songs with the Spiders from Mars on the Ziggy Stardust tour because I was the new man on the block. So I would slip out into the audience and watch him sing. And I'd sit in the first row. He didn't know I was there. <laughs> and I would think to myself, well, this guy is really good. I don't know this music. I'm a John Coltrane and Miles Davis freak and Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson, but or Tatum and people like that. But I don't know this guy, but I think he's like comparable to Miles, but in this other realm. So I got fascinated because I was only hired for eight weeks. And somehow I ended up the longest standing member with him. And I just, don't understand exactly why we were very different people, but I think perhaps our creative process was similar. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I'm curious about the musical philosophy at work here. Yeah, I think we both believed in a spontaneous unfolding and creating in the moment. That's a little oversimplified because you really can't do that too well if you haven't really disciplined your art and put in many, many hours. So I suspect the more hard work you do and the more discipline you have, potentially you could have more freedom when you then start to improvise. Because unlike most of the musicians and all whose bands for all those years, I was the loose cannon and he'd bring me in and he'd let me play whatever I want. And then the next 300 concerts I'd be on the road with him, I'd play it differently each time. So I was the only one that he allowed that freedom to because I didn't know how to do anything else. And I wasn't great on parts. I could play them and play an intro and an ending, but I, I always played what I felt in the moment. And he needed that because that's how he created his music. We both were very, well informed in our specific fields he, he knew more about little richard and people like that muddy waters you know like i knew about winton kelly or you know hank mobley or coltrane or you know freddie hubbard who i work with or stan getz who i work with. i mean he, he what i knew in those areas he was like a, a a master of knowledge when it came to rock and roll <clears throat> So, so we both had done the hard work. I mean, I, I think I've put in over 150,000 hours, Paul, on the piano, maybe 160,000 hours. You know, it's just, it, it's been my life's work dedication. And at 75, I'm still doing it. In fact, in some ways, my career is just beginning in a funny kind of a way because I supported so many singers from the age of 14 on up till, <clears throat> well, still doing it but more of my own music these days, or at least uh, following through with the Bowie alumni. And, um, but back in the day, I worked with Martha Reeves from Martha and the Vandellas. I worked with the jazz singer Nancy Wilson, Mel Torme, um, Elvin Jones, Coltrane's drummer, um, Lee Conard, Steve Liebman, Mike Brecker, Randy Brecker. It's just endless uh, because I just love music and, and I love it more now than I did when I was a kid because I think I appreciated more. One of the things you find out if you're lucky enough <laughs> to live long enough is that um, you know less and less as the years go on rather than 
in my 20s, I thought I knew 80 or 90% of all music. It's down to 6% now, and I suspect it'll be 3% in five years because a certain humility comes in because you realize the whole thing is a gift anyway, and you thought you were doing it, and maybe you did some hard work, but you, it's, it's still a gift. And whatever that means, I don't know. I've seen Beethoven talk about it, Mozart. I've seen many of the pop artists talk about it, but it's, it's, um, it's a surrendering to the music. But people sometimes misunderstand that and they get superficial and they don't take responsibility for doing the hard work. So maybe it's as simple as God helps those who help themselves. I don't really know, but it's just a thought, you know? You have a, certainly a very uh, deep and healthy, long view of music. And you talked about how maybe in a hundred years uh, from now, uh, the music that you're working on now may uh, come to some regard. And you've been attached to some of the most influential artists of the modern era from Motown to jazz to, to David Bowie and beyond. How do you feel about the time that we're in now with the music, the new music that's being created or what you're aware of? Do you think uh, from what you can see, how's history gonna look back on this time that we're in for new music being created? Well, I used to say 30 years ago uh, that in 80 or 100 years, which would be 70 years from now or 50, you would remember David Bowie and the Beatles and Dylan. And soon after that, I was running out of names, okay? So I think I was right about David, certainly right about John Lennon, certainly will be right about Dylan. Uh, I'm sure there's a few others. <clears throat> um, if it was 1913 and I was around, I, I would say watch out for Stravinsky. Keep an eye on that guy. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. 1700. I say, the Mozart guy seems pretty good. <laughs> so so where I fit, that's, that's sort of the history to evaluate because you don't really know. How, how would have I known that 47 years later, Aladdin Sane would still stick in people's minds when it was one take in the studio in London at Trident Studio in 1973, and maybe I didn't even hear the track for 10 or 15 years. You know, and I've played on thousands of tracks and composed over five or 6,000 pieces of music. How would I know that's the only one anyone talks about or maybe Greenwich all the time? So you know what, what I know from that is it has nothing really to do with me as much as the zeitgeist of the time and you're in the right place at the right time, all the right circumstances, which are way beyond and above what harmony, melody, and rhythm, which would be the elements of music stand for. So you start to see these things, especially if you're fortunate to, you know, be able to live a long time. I've seen people come and go. I've made all mistakes you can make. I still make them. And then you, you learn from them and you have opportunities. And uh, I think these times allow for a renaissance. I think uh, probably historically, when there's been pandemics right after, I think there have been renaissance. And I, I could feel this one happening as of months ago. And we're, we're in it now because think about all the artists in the last year who've been home just writing and composing. And that's what I've been doing. And I'd have to imagine thousands, if not millions have been doing it. So we'll end up with some great art. As far as the specifics of the music now, 
hip hop and things of that nature. It, it, I don't I don't know enough to 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 be knowledgeable except that there's always new music in any period. So Chopin was very strange when he was that music to people who were used to Mozart and Mozart people were strange because they were used to Bach. So I think great music comes out of every several decades or centuries and it, it, it finds its place. So there will be some music that's probably occurring now that that will stick, you know, and whether my classical music or some of my advanced jazz things stick, I don't know. But I don't think I do it for that reason. I do it because I can't help myself. And if someone likes it, thank God. And if they don't, fine, because I still enjoy writing it and playing it and improvising it. You know, I'm sitting at the piano now, you know, and you know, I could improvise for 24 hours and um, not be bored for one second. So I guess I'm fortunate in that my hobby and my career and my passion are all the same thing. So that's a little extraordinary uh, because so many places around the world, people are just trying to find a piece of food and how can you be thinking about writing a concerto when you're starving to death and your family's dying, you know? So I, I know that I'm blessed and fortunate in, in that way, you know, and I don't take it for granted, but I do know that's what I'm supposed to be here doing and even if I didn't know I was supposed to be here doing it, I'd still be doing it because I like it. So you have to be a little bit selfish as an artist to stick to your guns. And I think that's what David Bowie and myself had in common. Was there ever a time when you didn't feel like you were on the right path? And I'm thinking about the early 70s in New York City when you first met David Bowie there was a pretty interesting scene that you had John Lennon uh, just starting to hang around and become part of the fabric what was in New York. It seems like there was a, a bit of a bubble happening with Andy Warhol and all sorts of other things going on. Tell me a bit about those early days. Uh, well, early days for this particular scene. Was there a kind of a, a sense of magic going on in the air uh, in New York at that time? That would be the reason why a lot of this great art was created? Well, see, for me, the great art of jazz was happening in the 60s mm -hmm. with Miles Davis and Coltrane, these people I would see in Bill Evans. So that was my, uh, what would you call it, uh, the soundtrack of my life. So when I hit the 70s, I was a stranger in a strange land. I knew there was John Lennon. I didn't know there was Bowie. And then I'm playing in the band and I'm thinking when I'm playing for 20 or 30,000 people, I wish I was in that jazz club at the Village Vanguard. <laughs> so I wasn't very rational because I didn't get it because uh, I was a little bit of a jazz snob and a little bit uh, arrogant. And it was only <laughs> 20, 30 years later, I thought, this is pretty good. And even if I'm not playing jazz, I'm able to express myself and look at the guy I'm supporting. 
they seem to like him out there. And having played so many jazz clubs with five people in the club and making $5 and wondering, something's wrong with this picture. It, it turned out to be a, a, a wonderful ride and journey that's really still going. Do you think about what you want your legacy to be? Or do you, do you think about your legacy? Last few years, a little bit. And I remember when David started putting archives together, might have been 10 or 15 years before he passed, but he started taking responsibility for his stuff. I'm not quite there. I have, <laughs> I think, thousands of pieces on floppy disks, <laughs> MIDI data and files that I need to transfer to computers. So, and I need to get probably five people doing that for me. Um, I, I'm not quite there because I don't feel I have made my full impact yet. I think I was fortunate to be on the skirt, skirting these other areas for all these wonderful artists, but I don't think I've quite done my job. So it's I, the only part of the legacy I think about, because the Bowie stuff does what it does and I'm on it. So that's kind of sealed in history for better or worse, but my own music, because until you really exchange it with the public and people and it lands in the right places, whether it's now or 10 years or 100 years, it, you have a property, you don't have a product that you've exchanged. And a lot of music, Mendelssohn discovered box music and, you know, 100 years later, 150 years later. So I don't know what's meant to be. It's a little maybe too arrogant to think about the legacy that way, except that I do record and try to get my music transcribed and written out so others can play it. So I'm taking responsibility that way. And I still think I'm more in the uh, creative process. You know, if I didn't, if I was in a wheelchair, I didn't have my arms or legs or I was getting dementia or something like that, maybe then, and you realize maybe your time is limited, Maybe you take a look around and you get some help if you think you have anything <laughs> that's worthwhile to save and share. I'm, I'm still enjoying the game and being out there. I think my brain is like a 20 year old with more knowledge or wisdom than when I was 20 and, and more joy because most of the arrogance has peeled off. Once in a while it rears its ugly head, but for the most part, it's, it's kind of peeling off just because you've seen so much and, and you know there's no free lunch, as my dad used to like to say to me. So, you know, you just sort of have to do the right thing. And, uh, and then the next day you do the right thing again. And what that is is different for each person, but I, I know what that is for me. It's, it's my family, it's my composing, it's my teaching piano. It's my doing concerts and composing music and doing a little bit of studio work. I never did tons of it. I've done a little bit. Uh, Mick Ronson told me in 1972, we were standing in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel and we just come off a concert. And he said, Mike, don't do too much studio work because they'll turn you into white toast and, and you'll make a lot of money, but they'll take all the life out of you. So choose 
the sessions you like and actually have followed that. I've done a fair amount of studio work, but not as much as I could have done. Or friends of mine who lived in the studios and were making much more money than me through the years. It just wasn't who I was because I can only play music when I hear it in my inner ear and when I feel it. And if I don't, I'm almost minus zero. I'm actually a pretty lousy musician when I don't hear it or feel it. I can't fake it. So I, and when the music gets drained out of me, if I'm on a project that gets nasty or money motivated or uh, forcing me to do something because they think it's going to sell more records, I, I usually have to bow out because I don't hear anything and, and, and I'm not going to be able to deliver a product. So I usually would just say, I'm so sorry, I just don't hear anything. And I, <laughs> I never forget back in the late 90s, I must have turned down 20 films and, and, and every all my musicians from what why'd you do that what? I said well I read the scripts and I didn't hear anything in my head so how can I write the music so you know I'm one of those kind of artists and yet I do understand what it's like to be in the commercial world and play that kind of music I don't mind playing very simple music or commercial music but I have to feel it and like it you know and if I if I do I can contribute to it and if I don't I try to gracefully uh, slide out of it or pass. The few times that I thought I would do it for the money or because I felt responsible, it never turned out good. <laughs> In fact, it turned out ugly. So I learned the hard way. If I don't hear it, pass. And that's a good uh, a good lesson uh, to live life by in other uh, areas too, I would imagine. I want to I want to ask one last question as we round out our time uh, together in this uh, masterclass and it really has uh, felt like that when you when you look back at your time then with David Bowie is there one story or one moment uh, that in your mind kind of captures the essence of that relationship or just the character of what you guys shared together it was his guinea pig what does that mean, you'll say? Well, it, we're at the Hammersmith and it's the night in England in 73 that he's gonna fire the spiders from Mars and say, this is the last show we're ever playing, which shocked the hell out of everybody and the whole audience. And on that show, right before we went on the stage a few hours earlier, he said, you know, Mike, it's a big show tonight and Streisand's here and Beatles and Rolling Stones do me a favor, um, open the show, play a few of my songs like a medley, like it's an overture to a Broadway show. I said, thanks, David. <laughs> so he could check out the audience's reaction as I'm playing solo piano in front of all of these people. Skip to 2000 at Glastonbury, there's 250,000 people waiting, broke through the gates because it normally holds 100,000, it's big farmland in England. And, and he looks out and gets a little nervous and he says, Mike, go warm up the audience with green sleeves. <laughs> and it's actually on the DVD that came out. It wasn't even the greatest performance because I, I went into shock. And it's like, <laughs> but he, he he tested the weather. And then he came out and we did Life on Mars. No, we did a Wild as the Wind, I think. And, and, but, you know, those are kind of memorable experiences when <clears throat> he both trusts you and he um, messes with you. You know, he knew I could handle it, 
because uh, I'm a solo performer on the piano, but more for the jazz world or the classical world. So it was interesting. And he did it one other time at the BBC in 2000, I think in one or something, something around the same time. He told me to go, we were in London and he says, go out and uh, play Foggy Day in London town. <laughs> and I'm going, you know. That's what he asked for. <laughs> amazing. Well, it uh, you've you are living an amazing life, and I want to thank you for sharing some of that with us uh, today. Truly, it's been uh, it's been an enlightened masterclass, and I want to thank you, Mike, uh, very much for being here. Well, you know, it's my pleasure. The the simplicity is Paul. That it, if you don't pay it forward, it actually gets stuck in you and you get a little um, grouchy and uh, grumpy. You have to you have to let it out through music, through composing, through uh, master classes, which I've always taught since the 60s. And, and I've gone around to universities all around the world. When I, there was many years I wasn't with Bowie and it was just in the jazz world or classical. And I, I, I like sharing it. And I, I'm fortunate that I have the gift of teaching as well as I do playing. Most performers are not good teachers and most teachers aren't good performers and kind of blessed with those two. I could tell you all the things I can't do, but those two things I can do and I love doing it. So so it's, uh, it's, it's ditto is the word because if I didn't share it with you and your listeners, it's selfish actually. And how do this, this art has to be passed on and in the old days, it was done through poetry and prose and in different ways. And, and, and musicians would pass through towns and they'd leave their style and some, I mean, we've seen it with the blues and country music. And some of the knowledge that I've acquired from jazz and classical and rock, it's not exactly written in books and you're not gonna get it at Berkeley or Stanford, you know, you need somebody who's actually lived it and also, I've lived it in a very same way because I, in the 70s, what you were talking about, I, I really never used drugs. So I was sort of really an outsider and I was made fun of, but it just didn't resonate for my body and who I am. So I was sort of watching a lot of insanity, lost a lot of people. The others had 10 rehabs and or not even here now. So it, it's one of these things that I don't even know how I landed in that world, but I, I, I accept whatever my position is and hopefully continue to um, move forward with it. And I really don't know where it's gonna go because I tend to live my life as an improvisation. So thank you too. Well, you're definitely here for a reason and spoken like a true artist and master. And I guess I have to ask you, uh, can you just play us out? Uh, as we end off this thing, because you're in front of the piano and you've teased us enough with a couple of things. Does it come across distorted? Are you able? No, to it sounds it? it sounds fantastic. Sure.
That was perfect. That was excellent. Thank you very much. Just that a little was... improv. Thanks for listening. For more information about this episode, the work of Mike Garson, or to hear any of our other episodes in this masterclass series, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time. Thank you.